we've been talking about this series, we've been talking about, if I could boil down one or two principles that I think are just essential, it's just like life principles that I would just share with my boys, and I have five boys, what would they be? And not my wisdom, but the wisdom from the Scripture. What, what, if I could say, hey, here's four, four things. If you just get these and put these, go on the rail with these things, life is going to really, it's not going to necessarily change your circumstances, but it will change who you are and how you respond to circumstances, and it will give you the life that God wants you to have. What would they be? If I could all, if I could just boil it down. And, and the first one we talked about last weekend, as I said, give your heart to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Because He's the only one who deserves your life, and He's the only one who can be trusted with it. Do you know that you can't be trusted with your own life? Some of you have figured that out. You go, when I get a hold of my life, it doesn't go real well. And guess what? That's true for most of us, if we're honest. Doesn't it make sense that the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one that created us in His image, the one who has a plan and purpose for our life, really is the one that we can trust with our lives? So last week, I stated that if we don't know the purpose of our life, we'll often make it up for ourselves. We'll come up with a purpose. Because we have to have some reason for getting up and living. And, and, and here's some of the reasons that people live for. Here's some of the purposes that people have made for their lives. Some will, uh, in other words, they'll finish the sentence. They'll say, life only has meaning when I live for the following. When I live for someone who will protect me and watch over me. When I have somebody who will take care of me, then my life will be significant. Or my life will have meaning when that happens. Or my life will have meaning when I'm respected by, and just fill in the blank, my father, my mother, my coach, somebody, my brother, my sister, somebody, my best friend, that I'll be respected by them. My life will have meaning when that happens. Or my life will have meaning when I have power and influence over others. You know, and it may be in the workplace that I just have people under me and I can just tell them whatever I want. And they have to do what I want to do or I'll fire them. I want to have power and influence. And that's what my life's all about. That's why I get up every day to influence and, and wield power over people. Maybe you're the person that says, my life has meaning because I have freedom from obligations or responsibilities. I don't have to care for anyone. I could, I could just do whatever I want. That, that's what I get up for. That's what I live for. I don't really care what anybody else does. I'm just going to look out for number one. Or you say, well, my, uh, my life is, uh, will, will take on meaning and significance when I am finally recognized for my accomplishments. Or when I excel in my area of expertise. When I get the award, when I reach the plateau, when I accomplish this, and I'll get there and I'll say, there it is, I've done it. You know, and I think of Tom Brady, he says, you know, winning a Super Bowl, winning three Super Bowl rings, I'm there. And he gets there and he goes, I thought it'd be different. Or my life will mean, uh, have purpose in me when I arrive at a certain level of wealth and when I have financial freedom and I can get whatever I want whenever I want it. There's no limit to what I can get. If I want it, I can have it. I can live wherever I want. I can drive whatever I want. I can wear whatever I want. 
I just will be able, to, I'll be at that level where people will look at me and say, man, I wish I was you. Maybe it'll come down to this. You'll say, my life will have meaning when or in the process of making my children happy and having a happy family. And that's all I really want. I just want a happy family. And then I start having these kids. <laughs> and I realize I'm not happy. I was actually talking to a parent this morning, and I said something, you know, we were just conversing, and he said, life would be great if I didn't have any kids. <laughs> I go, I've been there, know that. Listen, none of these wanting to have recognition and, and, you know, certain comforts and that. Nothing's wrong. But to make that the purpose of life is just, man, if we don't, if we don't understand what our purpose is, we'll make one up. And I've got to be honest with you, it's not going to be satisfying. It's not going to do it. So I want to look at the, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It's really one of the, mo- one of the more incredible books of, of the New Testament. But chapter 2 is incredible because... Paul basically says some incredible things there. He says, you know what? You used to be dead. Spiritually, you were dead. You were in trespasses and sin. You were helpless and hopeless. You, you didn't have anything going on. I mean, you just, it was not good. And, and he says in chapter 10, in the first few, uh, the first uh, probably eight or nine verses, he says this, and you were rescued. God rescued you from condemnation. He liberated you from the slavery of sin. He's given you a future resurrection from the dead. And He's called you His new creation. All that in the space of ten verses. And He says, you were in a really sorry state, but now... And the interesting thing is, he says all this, he says, all this work is a work of God. It isn't anything that you've done. You were dead. You didn't make yourself alive, right? You were a slave. You didn't set yourself free. You know, you're not going to give yourself a resurrection after you die physically. This is all the work of God on your behalf. God did it for you. God is, you know, it actually says in the book of Ephesians, he's, you're right now seated with him in heaven. That's how sure our salvation is. We were under the wrath of God, but now we're seated with him in heaven. We were slaves, but now we're united with Christ. We couldn't raise ourselves from being spiritually dead. We can't take credit for it. You know, and this whole idea of being spiritually dead, let's just stop for a minute and let's talk about that. Because, you know, I remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And and I went to church every week. And um, I had read the Bible. And I had the Bible read to me. And, you know, I mean, not extensively, but I had heard it before. And I remember the first time I saw Ephesians 2, 8, 9. A friend pointed it out to me. And I saw those verses and I said, Wow, I've never seen that before. And my life is going in the opposite direction of those verses. Let me read those verses to you. It says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift of it's a gift. From God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And I saw that verse and it hit me like a two before. I said, What? 
I, I always thought it was what I did, going to church, believing in God, being better than most people, following the rules of, the, of my religious tradition. I thought it was all about that. And this verse says it's a gift that I didn't earn it, that it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's a gift from God by His grace. I'm thinking, that's totally mind-blowing. And, and the next thought I have is, why didn't somebody show me this verse before? How come nobody... Sh- I All those years I spent doing all this stuff thinking that I was going to have this resume and God was going to say, wow, that's fabulous, get in here. But no. And I go, it's not what I've done, it's what He's done. It's a gift. In other words, like when God gives, when you get a gift at Christmas, you just don't, you, you just take the gift and you say, thank you. You don't pull your wallet out and say, how much does this set you back? Right? You, you know you don't do that. You just say, it's a gift. And I go, why didn't I ever see that before? And the answer is, because I was spiritually dead. My heart had not been turned. My eyes had not been opened. I couldn't have seen it if I had tried. And what Paul is saying here is salvation is by His grace. Because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we can take no credit for our salvation. Now, the interesting thing is, and I don't want to focus on this, but you ought to have, you should just take eight verses, eight, nine, and ten if you have a written Bible like this one, old school, or you can highlight it. But you ought to highlight 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 2. And you ought to memorize it. Because those are incredibly important verses. They just summarize and they go against the flow of everything that you're hearing in our pop culture today. But I want to focus on verse 10 because Jesus basically is saying, and Paul is saying to us, that Jesus didn't just save us so that one day we could go to heaven. He has something bigger planned. He doesn't just give us life merely to forgive our sins and to provide a way to our Father in heaven. He saved us for a reason. Well, what is the reason? Ephesians 2.10 tells us. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew uh, in Christ Jesus so we could do the good things He planned long ago. So Paul is saying something quite remarkable. He's saying, I am God's poem. I am God's opus magnus. I am His work of art. I'm His masterpiece. The Greek word masterpiece here, it refers to a work. It could could refer to a song. It could refer to an architectural design. It could refer to a poem, a painting, or a statue. This may be one of the most incredible descriptions given in Scripture about a believer. He is saying that you and I are God's work of art. We are His masterpiece. Now let that sink in just for a little bit, because you probably have people around you who have said, you'll never amount to much. You're not very pretty. You're not very significant. You're not very gifted. You're not very talented. And I just want to say to you that the God of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth, who created the the, the planet that we look at and And if you've been out in the last few weeks, you've seen the beauty of creation. That person says, you are my masterpiece. You are the crescendo of creation. 
Let that sink in a little bit. God is the creator of everything. There's nothing that exists apart from Him. He brought everything into being. The galaxies, the, the Milky Way galaxy that we live in, all, are all expressions of His handiwork. All of nature speaks of the glory of God. Heaven and earth sang together the praise of God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. In other words, when you look at the skies and you look at the earth and you look at all of His creation, you could come to no other conclusion to say there is an intelligent, beautiful designer behind it all. There's an artist behind it. But Paul is saying something pretty incredible here. He's saying, but yet, if you look at the stars and you look at all the galaxies and you look at the earth and you look at all the beautiful places, I mean, around the world and across the United States, he's saying... That is beautiful. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the crescendo of creation. Now, in Genesis 1, uh, chapters 1 and 2, we're told that man, men and women, that mankind was created in the image of God, that every person has the thumbprint, the fingerprint, the, the, the DNA of God. There's, there's, a, there's a touch of God on every created person. Every person has that. So that, that takes a, that, you know, the implications of that are, are, are far reaching because it says that sexism is wrong, that racism is wrong, that anytime you criticize somebody because of, of what, what they look like or because they're of a different race or something like that, the minute you do that, you're saying to the artist who is, who has said they are created in my image, you're saying, that's a piece of garbage. In fact, we're the only part of creation made in His image. But that's not what Paul's referring to in this passage in verse 10 when he says that we are His masterpiece. What Paul is saying is that those who have called upon the Lord, those who have found the forgiveness through His sacrifice, those who have understood that they're lost and they're helpless and they're hopeless, who have called upon the Lord and allowed Jesus to come into their lives, are now becoming His work of art. Now, what that means is every person has dignity because they bear the image of God, but not every person is His masterpiece. Only those who bow the knee to Jesus. Only those who call Him Lord and Savior. Only those that say, Jesus, You are my God. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. And and at that point, Paul says, we now have crossed the line from being somebody who has the mark of God to somebody who becomes His masterpiece. That's what he's saying in verse 10. That He's daily transforming us. It says this in 2 Corinthians, Paul again, 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, as His masterpiece, we're in the process of being renewed and remade by Him. And this is the context, or this is the greatest work of all creation. Because it costs the Son and the Father and the Spirit everything. You know, that's why the meal is like, it's a death. It's about a death. 
It cost him his very life. The God of the universe got off of his throne, came to earth, took upon the limitations of human flesh, lived a life, was misunderstood, was, was abused, was, uh, was betrayed, and was finally executed. <laughs> you know, if, if somebody from outer space had come to earth and said, and said, I heard that the God of the universe came to your planet, what did you do? Well, we murdered him. I mean, that's essentially what, what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish audience that day. He says, you know, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, well, he came. We murdered him. And it says in Acts 2, and they were pricked in their hearts. They said, well, what do we do? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The unparalleled power of Jesus' resurrection was unleashed for our redemption. And now that same power begins to work in the transformation of our lives as we become His masterpiece. What would I tell my boys? I would tell my boys, give your heart to Jesus. Tell them, love, uh, let Him mold you and remake your hearts and lives. I would say, number one, give your hearts to Him and, in, and lives to Him. Secondly, I would say, let him, mold him and, let Him mold and remake you. Let Him mold you and remake you. So the idea that I want you to take with you this weekend is this. You will live, your God-given, you will live to your God-given potential when you let Jesus mold you and make you into His incredible masterpiece. And when you do that, you become the crescendo of His creation. There is nothing greater. And it says the Bible in the Bible, the angels love watching. When we allow Him to mold us and make Him, we begin make us. We begin to live as we were designed to live. We find our purpose. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Have you noticed that? You know, Michelangelo was one asked once asked. What he was doing, he was chipping away at a shapeless rock, and he replied, I'm liberating the image, uh, an angel from this stone. I'm liberating an angel from this stone. And that's what God is doing with us. Our lives are in the hands of the greatest artist, the Redeemer, the ultimate sculptor, the creator of the universe, who created the universe out of nothing. Our hands are in his, our, our lives are in his hands. Did you know? That when he begins a work of art, he begins to work in your life, he never has to start over. He never makes a mistake. I remember in uh, grade school art class, Mrs. Steinbrenner would put a piece of white paper on the board, and she would be, you know, she'd like around this time, we'd be drawing like turkeys, right? And she didn't let us use the hand. That was, that was a later addition, and that was a great one too, by the way. <laughs> But we'd all get a piece, you know, and, and she would start, and she was such a good artist. And, and we would draw, and then, you know, hands would go up. And yes, yes, what? Well, I made a mistake. Can I start over? She said, no. You've got to live with it. She wasn't real gracious. <laughs> so those turkeys bring them home and go, what is that? That's eh, not too good. But... <laughs> right? But he never makes a mistake. He never has to start over. He never says, uh-oh, you know. And in Philippians 1.6, it says, 
And I am certain, Paul says, that God, who began this good work within you, will continue this work, His work until He is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So how does God make us? What are the tools that He used to chip away at our life to make us, to bring the, 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 the masterpiece out from the piece of rock that He has before Him? What are the tools He uses? Well, He uses the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible says that the, the Spirit of God dwell, begins to dwell within us the minute we call upon the Lord. Jesus left another comforter. It's the Holy Spirit. And here's how it works in my life. That when I say things or I do things that are inappropriate, um, I don't need somebody to, to, to have caught me and confront me. Just the Spirit of God will say to me, hey, you know, you said this, you did this, that was kind of inappropriate. You need to go and make things right with that person, right? And, and that's how the Spirit of God works in my life. So, so uh, that's one way. The Word of God is another way. The Word of God is there to transform us, uh, to mold us and to make us, to correct us, to, to encourage us, to inspire us, and to, to bring us to our knees, to repent. Um, difficult times, sometimes difficult times God uses to bring us, you know, to knock some chips off, to, to make us into His great masterpiece uh, James says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and tribulations. Well, I never do that. I mean, I never say, oh, great, I just wrecked the car. Oh, great, I've got to go to the doctor for this. I don't do that. I mean, I, I generally don't have that attitude. But James is looking to the end game. He's saying, through all of this, God has got a plan and God is shaping you. God is molding you. God is making you. God is doing something here. Or God can do something here. Or through people. Many times God shapes us through people. Um, probably if you're married, the number one person that can and maybe will shape your life is your spouse or a friend or somebody like that. And if you let them, it'll be a good thing. The Bible talks about men having other men friends in your life. And it says that iron sharpens iron. And what they mean is sometimes when you have those close relationships, they can look you eye to eye, toe to toe, and say, hey, I see this going on in your life. And the answer, the question I ask you is, do you have men like that in your life that can call you out and say, hey, what's going on here? I see this. This is, this is troubling. This is concerning to me. And I care about you. That's why I'm asking. Sometimes God uses people, difficult people, Right? What I find is sometimes God brings difficult people into my life when I don't need them. And that's just about, <laughs> that's, that's just about all the time. I pulled out of my driveway and I had a difficult person in the road. It was like a Mexican standoff. I just said, whatever. <laughs> but God does that. Now, here's the problem. The process doesn't always go the way that we plan, does it? Why is that? I found two reasons. One is that we, you have to hold still. When God is working, you have to hold still. I remember when I was a kid getting my hair cut with my mom. And again, I have five brothers. The reason I tell you that is we were like a production line. Okay? My mom get the clippers out. It's time to get a haircut. She'd be doing six haircuts. In any, whatever order, it wasn't like oldest to youngest. It was just whoever was there first. And like usually wanted to be first while she was fresh. (laughs) 
she'd get the clippers out, and the first thing she'd say is, hold still. I learned that was really important, because if you didn't hold still, she'd run those clippers into your ear. And she did once, and drew blood. And nothing panicked me more when my mother basically was talking to my Aunt Patty on the phone while she was trying to cut my hair. It, it, didn't, look, it didn't usually turn out well. Right? So, I remember our oldest boy, Kyle, when he got his first haircut. And here it is. That's Grandpa Jones. Great Grandpa Jones. And he is giving Kyle his first haircut. And that's Carol holding him still. (laughs) And it's a rock wall painting, isn't it? And the look on Kyle's face is the look in our face when God says to us, Hold still. And our eyes are going, Are you kidding me? Can I trust you? Right? Isn't that what's going on? By the way, the the other reason I bring that picture up there is I just want Daryl Cloud to know that his aren't the only cute kids. (laughs) All right? You get a little tired of that stuff, don't you? (laughs) He's not here, so I can say whatever I want. (laughs) Here's the second reason that I found things, the wheels come off, and we'll close with this. Sometimes I grab the tools away, and I say, God, I'll take over. And I begin to chip away, because I think I know my life better than he does. I mean, I know he's the creator of the universe. I know he knows everything. I know he has a plan for my life, but I think my plan is really better. And I start whacking away at things. The next thing you know, I'm knocking my nose off. Well, actually, I'm not really doing that. But, you know, you're doing all sorts of things, and you're, you're, you're just... And you know what you're making at that point? The minute you take the tools away from God and you say, I'm in charge, I'm going to make my life, you're in charge of making a cheap forgery. Some of you are living a forgery right now because you got the tools in your hand and you've been shaping for a while. And it doesn't look anything at all like what God wants it to be. And you've got the tools and you're afraid to give the tools back to God and say, God, I made a mess. Absolute mess. It's a forgery of what you want it to be. And maybe what you need to do, maybe today what you need to do is you need to say, God, I've had the tools too long. I give them back to you. Go to work on the masterpiece that you intended. Make me into what you want me to be. Here's the question I want to close with. Are you allowing God to make you into His masterpiece? Or are you creating your own forgery? And what are you going to do about it? What would I tell my boys? I would say, give your hearts and lives to Jesus. That's number one. Number two, when you give your hearts and lives to Jesus, let Him make you and mold you and remake you. Let Him have the tools and let Him go at you. Because He's the only one that knows what you can be. We take the tools in our hands. The forgery work begins. And it isn't pretty. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And Father, this is uh, so true.
And most of us would say we have pieces missing. We have distortions because we have taken the tools. We've tried to shape our own lives. We thought we knew better. And we've paid dearly. I pray, Father, that we would give the tools back to you. And that we would bow before you. That we would sit still and allow you to make us into your great masterpiece. For our good and your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.